Hello, I'm Stephen Seifert. You're listening to the uh, Dulcimer Geek Podcast. I'm here with Aaron O'Rourke. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, Steve. How are you doing? I'm all right. Where's Dan? Where's Uncle Danny? He is having fun on the beaches of Florida with the family, from what I understand. Yeah. Did you listen to the... It sounds like more of a vacation. Yeah. Did you listen to the podcast that we did together, Uh, just me and Dan? Earlier this week? No. Okay, that, that's good. <laughs> no. Why is that? Well, um, I'm not joking. We actually just sat down and did our nails for the entire podcast. I don't believe you. No, it's true. What do you mean you did your nails? We shaped our nails for finger picking. Oh. I brought I brought nail files over, and we did our nails. Do you have a yeah? So you guys already talked all about nails. Yeah, and I and I realized uh, at some point in the podcast that uh, that you don't use your nails at all when you finger pick, do you? Right. Yeah. Still would have been awesome to you have know. you. I had some buddies who were like, "Let's all go get a pedicure," and I was like, "All right." And the closer it got to it, I was like, "I am not walking around with these two guys." <laughs> and I'm not going into a pedicure place with them. It's it's nothing wrong with doing it. I just backed out. You call me what you want. I you, was scared. You just felt uncomfortable. You but, know, the biggest part was I was scared to get my feet shaved. You know how they shave the skin off or whatever. That was yeah. freaking me out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't use my nails when I finger pick. Because, uh, I mean, I really like the sound of it, actually. It's good. It's got a real nutty sound to it. But um, I really do like to pretend I'm playing harp. And when I use just the flesh of my fingers to do the finger picking, it just reminds me of a harp. Um, played by a guy without fingernails, you know. So this I is... like that warm, thumpy sound. And if I want the brighter sound... It's an opportunity for me to practice my cross picking and stuff. Okay, that's pretty much. I think I share the same view, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you this, and this is what I, I said last week, and my opinion on this has started to evolve a little bit recently. Over the last seven days. No, uh, leading up to the last <laughs> podcast okay. that we did. Um, okay. I didn't really get the point of finger picking Mountain Dulcimer because I, I play finger style guitar and right. finger picking on Dulcimer seemed like the, the only way I uh, I would be driven to it was for the tonal aspect of playing with the pads of your fingers because that will give you a warmer tone generally than playing right. with a pick. The pick, my pick of choice anyway, when I'm flat picking or strumming but uh i was already keeping my nails pretty long for playing finger style guitar celtic finger style guitar uh which uses some of these ornaments that are kind of intense and wreak havoc on your nails um so it was a lot harder for me with how long i was keeping my nails to use just the pads of my fingers to get that warm tone oh yeah 
Um, but now there's there's some ornamentation that I'm starting to explore on Mountain Dulcimer a little bit more with uh, finger style that hmm. uh, that just wasn't happening before, and it's hard for me to do it with a pick. Huh. I mean, a big part of me, it is the tonal difference. Right. And, but... I feel a certain, I get a good feeling when I finger pick. I think for me it came from um, the first lady who ever put a dulcimer in my lap, Marilyn Craft. She passed away a number of years ago. You know, before I'd ever touched a dulcimer, I saw that article in the paper. I think it was Cincinnati Inquirer. And um, she said that she had been going through cancer treatments and she loved to finger pick her dulcimer late at night. It didn't bother anybody, and it, it helped her to calm down and stuff. Nice. So I've got this kind of um, history with it, where I see it as this thing that I cradle. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, not not really like a baby, but it, it just feels good. And when I get into that finger pick part, you know, when I use a pick. If I cross-pick with a thicker pick, I get a little more satisfaction out of it. But when I cross-pick with my herdum, which is what I'm usually doing, Mm -hmm. it's just a little too thin for me to carry all the emotion I want my slower stuff to carry. So for slower stuff specifically? Yeah, with a lot of speeding up, slowing down. Mm -hmm. You know, when I finger-pick, it's not uncommon for me to just play on one string for two measures. Yeah. Not even hit another string. So there's... And you get a... I get a little more... I just get more when I'm not using... Not getting the bright harmonics that come out from using a pick, I think. So there's a couple things uh, going on there. Um, One, whenever I would play something slower, uh, I would also gravitate towards using a heavier pick... Um, usually one of the black nylon, Jim Dunlop nylon picks because I thought it sounded warmer. Yeah. Um, since I started playing on the Beatty, which has a little bit base, bassier, warmer tone yeah. to it, the Hurdum doesn't bother me quite as much. Actually, at all. I actually really like it now, and I still like that there's sort of this high articulation that comes off of the attack. Especially hmm. if I'm doing some noty cross picking work, um, but have you ever gone? Have you ever gone into a workshop and you've had uh, notation for a cross picked section, and someone says, "So are we finger picking that, or so what's that finger picked se- section?" Oh uh, well, usually with me, it's they get a finger pick tab. Oh, or, okay. You know, and they're asking me, should we use our pick or, or are we going to finger pick this? Okay. I-, I mean, you got to remember, I'm not... A big push for my teaching the last six years has been giving students increasingly simpler pieces of paper and asking them to interpret what's on the paper. That's cool. And that's been a whole bunch of cool stuff. It's, I mean, it's just been fun for me to do. But it... and. And I do teach flat picking, and I explain what cross picking is to me, mm-hmm. but I'm not really giving a lot of arrangements with cross pick sections lately. Okay. I feel like, man, when I started out 
there were so many people who couldn't strum. Yeah. And they couldn't strum in the same way I was not able to strum when I started. It was the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I would go to teach these people these fancy arrangements. And I was working with David Schnaufer, and he was teaching them these really cool arrangements. But what I noticed was, you know, everybody got their left hand going. But their right hand just was crippled. It was stuttery. You know, it just wasn't happening. Interesting. So I, I think, hmm. I don't know what year I started. I mean, like 16 or 17 years ago, I started thinking, how can I get people to strum better? And um, I do think that I now can help someone develop a good strum. It, it takes me much less time to help somebody do that than it used to take me. And so now I feel like I am... I don't know. I, I I'm getting into other stuff, but I'm. I know this sounds crazy, but I just felt like, look, I don't even care if these people like me or not. If I could just get them to strum well, I feel like I'll have really helped them. You know? Yeah. Anyway, so you think that's that it's why evolved? I've been doing a lot of cross picking. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, just out of curiosity, I mean, would you say that that has evolved? Since you started, since you got into the dulcimer scene? Part of me wants to think that it might have, but, I mean, they've got better strummers. There's a lot of good strummers that are teaching and a lot that are jamming. And I just, I don't know. Hmm. I mean, I can remember people were more out of tune 20 years ago. Oh, really? And I hear it was worse before that. You know, electronic tuners really coming along. Yeah. Um, helped. And um, I don't know, man. I don't know. Hmm. I feel like in the short period of time that that I've been going to dulcimer festivals, I think I've seen it evolve a little bit. Um, I like to think so. Yeah. I just, I have never surveyed it, but I'll tell you how the survey would work. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm yeah, interested. You, yeah. You ask everybody to play Bow Them Cabbage at a moderate tempo mm -hmm. and you just count how many people are alternating their hand back and forth most of the time. And of those who aren't, how many look smooth and flowing? Cause I'll give them a pass also. Okay. We don't need to get into alternate strumming, but what I've been telling my classes lately. Well, first of all, what is it called? Alternate picking? Alternating picking? Uh, what do we call it? Um, are you talking about going up and down or out and in? Yeah, that's right. Whether you're hitting the strings or not. What do we call that? <laughs> Whether you're hitting the strings or not. Um like like um, like Steve Kaufman, I think he calls it alternate picking. Okay, I mean I call it alternating the pick. Okay. to the beat whether you're hitting the strings or not. Oh, okay, I see. What do you call that? Well, I call the foundation of it uh, pick stroke theory. Ooh, but I didn't make PST. that up. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> PST. What's up with that? Man? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I heard uh, Chris Thiele refer to um, the system of um, beats dictating your pick direction um, versus what string you're going to dictate um, well, your pick direction. Uh, I heard him refer to it as pick stroke theory, and I've heard other people refer to it as pick stroke theory since well, then. Well, there's different peak pick stroke theories. Right, in the way that a gypsy jazz guitar player is going to treat their ups and downs is very different from a bluegrass right. flatbed guitar player. Or or Bill Monroe on a mandolin or something. Right. I think, I just want to be clear, because I know some people hate me for this, <laughs> the way that I strum. <laughs> but um, I teach people on a foundational level to alternate the pick to the beat of the music, whether it's swing or straight, you know, eighths or whatever you want to look at it, whether you're hitting the strings or not. And, and I, and as we work on that, I constantly remind people, Hey, there are exceptions to this that are awesome, Mm -hmm. that are worthy of exploration. I just want you to get this down first. It gives us a basis by which to decide if we should go to these exceptions or not. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. but the biggest reason I teach it is if I just let a group of beginners hit the strings whenever they want, it just sounds crazy. Yeah. I just like things to be uh, aligned a little bit. Is that so wrong? Well, I mean, I don't know. I think like, like you said, it is a good foundation that uh, you can decide or it's up to the player to decide when they want to break it, break away from it. And I, I do break away from it like you, um, pretty frequently And there are specific techniques, uh, where I would want to break away from that, like sweet picking. S W E E P. <laughs> yeah. Which is like, that's a, great. Dan thought we were saying sweet. Picking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's some sweet picking. Yeah. But, but it's indeed, it ends with a P, yeah. Yeah, but where it comes to just alternating for every beat, I've, I try and uh, tell people to exercise caution when doing that. Even yeah. It's something that I use a lot uh, when I'm having a hard time with a tune, especially if it's got some challenging rhythms to it, play it really, really, really slow, count every and beat and alternate the pick direction, alternate your pick for every single beat. And it helps me figure out a song that way and get it under my fingers. But one of the issues that I I think I, I did kind of early on with that was I was overemphasizing the movements to get my whole body into it. And it was then work to try and dial that back a little bit. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, when I'm teaching and I'm trying to get people to move back and forth, I'm even moving back and forth a lot more than usual just as a visual reminder of right. you know what I want them to do. And I keep telling them, hey, all these movements become smaller. Mm. And sometimes that out and in where I'm not hitting the strings, it just exists in my mind. <laughs> I'm not actually <laughs> moving there. Yeah. But I mean, it's, um, it's, you know, I'm just trying to get the stinking notes to happen. 
<laughs> you were talking about articulation. That's yeah. a word I've been trying to use more often. To me, it means how how you begin a note, how a note starts. What, what do you what do you call articulation? Um, I think an articulate note is just one that's clear. I think, um, for example, if uh, if I were to use the pad of my finger and go from bass to melody string, ba ba ba. They're going to blend together. I wouldn't consider those articulate. If I were to use my pick or the nail and drag it across, it's going to be a little bit brighter. And you're probably going to be able to pick each note out individually on its own. That's what I would call articulate. Does that make Here's, sense? I just, I just looked it up. Uh, on, here's Wiki. In music, articulation refers to the direction or performance technique which affects the transition or continuity on a single note or between multiple notes or sounds. Like, I know for a, a whistle, I can articulate a note by simply blowing. Mm -hmm. Or I can tongue at the beginning of the note, like, too, you know, I can, oh, okay. I can start with a simple blowing or I can start with that T sound where the tongue goes to the top of my roof of my mouth, like near my teeth. Those are two different ways I can articulate notes, whether it's a single note or a series of notes. I can also put them like what they call a cut. Mm -hmm. at the beginning, which sounds like a little bubbly sound. For us, it might be a pull-off or something. Right. That's another way to articulate a note. So when I do a roll, I might play three Gs on a whistle or a flute. And the first one, I might just blow. And the second note, the second G, I'll do a cut. And the third note, I'll do a strike. But really, it's just three notes. Ba-da-da. Uh -huh. And I know I could move those around if I want, but I think of that as three, the same note articulated three different ways. Okay. So it really, it really ends up being five notes. But or, I never but think of it like that. Ever. Okay. And that, that goes back to, um, oh shoot. What's his name? Gray Larson. Yeah. In his whistle book. Because yeah. Those little cuts, those little chirps, mm -hmm. they don't, sometimes they produce notes that aren't even in the key. Right. And you're doing it so fast. If you're using a synthesizer, you're like, I want a little chirp sound on the beginning of the note. You don't think of that as a another note. But yeah. most of the Irish books out there will show a roll with five notes yeah. when I think, I love how Gray Larson presents it. It's three notes each mm -hmm. articulated in a different way. He was the first one to make me think about articulation. And since then, I like I listened to a Charlie Parker saxophone solo where this guy said, I'm going to play this note for note, just a section of it. He said, doesn't sound like Charlie Parker at all, does it? And then he says, now I'm just going to change my articulation. You know, and boom. You know, he added slurs. He added things with his mouth. And it did sound like Charlie Parker. Interesting. That's really cool. Well, I, 
I've just really kind of started getting into Scottish bagpipe music. Yeah. And I feel kind of weird whenever I teach a workshop on it when we start talking about ornamentation. Um, because if you if you end up really picking apart some of those ornaments, the notes in those ornaments go up, I mean, crazy high uh, from the original note that it's, the melody note that it's centered around, and then back below and back up. And yeah. what I found I'm saying a lot in workshops now is um, while I'm I'm reluctant to say anything's impossible on Mountain Dulcimer, there are some things that just are that are certainly less practical. <laughs> um, Seems to be so far, but yeah. you can take those same sounds right and come up with an equivalent statement that is exactly more yeah. That's what we're trying to do most of the time. But you don't get as much of that honking geese sound. (laughs) Not quite. No, but in a a room full of, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 Mountain Dulcimer players doing Scottish bagpipe tunes, it does have that kind of, like, I would run across a battlefield to this. I've got a buddy down in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, Bruce, he's been, when he was younger, he played with Bill Monroe. He played five-string banjo. But in these later years, I still think think of him as a young man. (laughs) (laughs) But in these uh, later years, he's been playing fingerstyle guitar. I think he uses a lot of two-finger approach, but I could be wrong, like thumb and index finger. Oh, okay. Um, On purpose, because he likes the choices it gives him. Interesting. Um, and he's been studying Scottish tunes, and he's coming up with fingerstyle with a lot of alternating bass, and it's Scottish music. It's like, really nice. By alternating bass, are you talking about like Chet Atkins style or uh, like Travis style bit. picking? With Like when you the- listen to that early um, acoustic blues stuff, mm-hmm. like Mississippi John Hurt, yeah. I think, is maybe... Um, he just studied all the different styles of that, and I think he's playing Scottish tunes with that style. Oh, that's pretty cool. On an old archtop acoustic, I believe. I've actually been going through Mississippi John Hurt phase. Okay. Uh, on guitar, but I'm doing all of it in dadgad tuning. Uh, yeah. And Maybe you guys should meet. It sounds like <laughs> it, yeah. No, he would love you. He would get a kick out of you. We gotta hook you guys up. It sounds like we have an awkward amount of stuff in common. For sure. Yeah, musically anyway. That's cool. Um so it's just you and me. We can talk about anything we want. <laughs> yeah, I guess we I need, wanted to it's been a while we need to catch up. You've been on the road quite a bit. I know, for the first time in my life, you know, I've been living under this guilt where I'm always thinking I need to do a better job of booking my year. Yeah. You know, I just take what comes and hope for the best. Well, this last October, I think, I pretty much worked real hard to book all of 2017. Nice. And I think I had the bulk of it booked before 2017. Nice. Well, now I realize, you know, my kids are 13 and 14. 
and they still want to hang out with me. <laughs> so I don't want to be gone this whole year. So I've actually canceled a few things. Um, it turned out to be stuff with low attendance. Mm-hmm. But um, I feel like I overdid it, which was all right. Because yeah. I've always underdid it. So that's that's one thing I'm working on. Um, just getting some balance to that. But I like the idea of having the whole year booked. And then, so let's say you've got January to December booked. Well, now you just need to book January of 2018, you know? Yeah. And you can always be thinking a year ahead. Some people you work with don't want to think that far out, but at least at least you can get those who do. Right. You know? Yeah. Honestly, I'm, uh, I feel like I'm the worst person I've ever met at booking and that I think every gig I've ever had has been the result of sheer dumb luck and not me pushing for it. Yeah. And I need to get better at that, but, uh, that's what most of mine have been. But when it comes to clubs, yeah. And me doing these three day intensives, you kind of got to be the catalyst on the majority of that. So you're doing a lot of that. How many is it is it fair to say have you have you kind of cut back a little bit from doing dulcimer festivals? I don't know. I mean, I've got a number of festivals. If you look at my calendar, it's pretty current. Um I'm just doing more 3 days and less clubs. Okay. It's roughly the same amount of festivals, but more 3-day intensives which I organize. Cool. And far fewer clubs. Mm. Now that all may change. I think um these 3-day intensives I need to do fewer of them. Yeah. Maybe charge a little more and try to do some more of the bigger clubs. I'd mm-hmm. like to do. That. I love visiting clubs. It's fun. Nice. Hey, let's pretend. Well, yeah. <laughs> let's let's pretend that I'm that you run a club and I'm gonna call you. Okay. All right. All right. This is cheesy, but I'm just let's do it. All right. All right, so say hello. Uh hello? Who is this? Hi, my name's Steven Seifert. I'm a dulcimer player from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm calling to speak with Aaron O'Rourke. Oh, I know you. Yeah. Hey, Steve, how are you doing? Thank God you know who I am. That makes this call a lot easier to do. Hey, listen, I, um, I'm going to be coming through your area in September. September? Um, oh, I'm, okay. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm leaving Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm actually headed down to Richland, Mississippi. And uh, I'm wondering if on this on the Saturday between, if maybe we could get something going with your club where I do a little workshop, maybe a mini concert or something like that. Do you uh, think your group might be interested? Well, that could be fun. Um, let me let me take this to the group um, and uh, run it by them for proposal and get it approved by committee. But uh, you know, actually. Why don't we do this? Do you have a place to stay when you're passing through? Um, so I'm, 
I might, but I might not. Do you have something in mind? Well, I think we'd have a... I'd be interested in taking a private lesson from you if you were just passing through. And depending on how many people we get, would you be open to something like, okay, we'll schedule... uh, I can get at least two or three of us interested in a group lesson or three individual private lessons if you have that long to kill. And if we get more than that... Well, here's what I'm thinking. Okay. Um... If I've got to get this at least tentatively on the calendar. So what if we just said tentatively, I'm going to be at your place to at least do a private lesson and, you know, get a breakfast (laughs) the next morning. Um, And in the meantime, I could send you a schedule of what it would be like if I did work with your whole group. Okay. And you guys can, you can just see what it would, you know, let what I'd love to do is just plan it like it's going to happen tentatively, and you can just let me know if we need to cancel it or not. Okay. Well, I, I think we can do that. And like I said, I, I need to take it to the group and uh, get them to approve it. But why don't we tentatively put it on the calendar? All right. Well, here's the thing. If you take it to your group, they're probably going to vote this down (laughs) they're not gonna want to do this so is there any way that we could avoid you taking it to the group could we just plan it and if nobody comes i'll be happy (laughs) (laughs) all right we that's enough and scene that's enough okay but isn't that funny i mean um the people do have to take it back to their club and voted in and that's great right but i always appreciate it when somebody says look you send me a schedule put it on your calendar tentatively i'm just gonna you know what i'd rather is instead of um people put it to a vote i'd rather them just send out a thing that says who wants to do this (laughs) you know like by email yeah but some clubs uh they don't have their communication down well enough to do that they gotta meet it just seems like when they put it to a vote, it never happens. Doesn't it sound crazy? Well, coming. F- I mean, I think it, this is just my my impression. Some clubs, uh, <laughs> some clubs exist with the um, with the intent being to get together and jam and organize uh, um, group performances and keep things on a on a low key and right. And not to bring in a professional dulcimer player once a year, and, and I that's think, fine. Yeah, and I think some sometimes there's just that struggle for uh, identity, and this is what we this is what we formed the group for, and this right. yeah, and so and, and sometimes these people are busy enough, right, with their private lives. You know, it's all they can do. Mm-hmm. I and mean, when we call them and ask them to put together a day, we're asking somebody sometimes to maybe even, we may not realize this, but we might be asking them to take a day off work, to take the only day off they have that week maybe to be with family and spend it with us. Oh, I th- You know, we're, we're asking people sometimes to do quite a bit. I think by default, I... I proceed as if I'm going to be a burden on every everyone I come in contact <laughs> with. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we have and always it, relied upon the generosity of strangers. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> but I, I but, think that um, 
No, well, I mean, a lot of times somebody's excited to do something. But the funny thing is I'm always scared to call the club. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, would you guys be willing to drop everything and make a big deal about me? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's 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 um it's it's hard to make those calls. Yeah. That's why I'm doing so few clubs right now. But the funny thing is, is when I get on the phone with them, it always seems to go. Eighty percent of the time, it goes a lot better than I expected. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to describe this one because this is interesting. So you'll have a club where you know some of the people they want you to come. But the person organizing the club doesn't want you to come or doesn't want anybody to come, you know. Okay. But the group, some of the members in their group do, you know. So you you call and talk to the head boss and and they go, Well, we've actually got a pretty busy year and but we'll we'll let you know if we're interested in anything in the future. We'll give you a heads up. And then there's a few times I know I'm telling my secrets here. But there's a few times where I've said, hey, um, I understand that doing this with the whole club might not work out. Uh, and I understand. I get that. Yeah. But are, is there just one or two people in your group that might be interested in me coming and just doing a little thing at their house, maybe just for like three people? Because I'm going to be coming through anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come through your town anyway. I would just as soon meet with somebody, have a little fun. You know, yeah. And so they might say, "Well, yeah, you know, so and so is a big fan of yours." So then I get on the phone and I call so and so, and I'm like, "Can we do a little thing at your house with like two or three people?" Well, before you know it, it turns into like 27 people. Okay. You know? Now, it's funny because so and so and so is a big fan of yours. Is the the most polite way of saying I'm not a big fan of yours. Yeah, I've ever heard. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, should this even be on a podcast? I have no idea. But it's it's simply this. I do this for a living. I have fun doing it. And if I'm coming through a town, and there's somebody that wants me there, I'd just soon do that than sit at a hotel all day or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't want any down days. If I'm on the road for 10 days, I'd really like to be working 80% of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a cool thing kind of kind of happened recently. Uh, a lady sent me an email last night. I need to write back to her. Um, uh, asking, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it to this festival uh the timing just doesn't work out but can i i'll uh come to chattanooga and get a hotel room but can i have like a can i block out two days of your time with you and just pay yeah. you for a two-day private intensive and right that sounds cool i've been doing some of those the last few years that's awesome it's intense i think the that's way i cool. like to do it is like do like nine to 11. <clears throat> yeah. And then like three to four thirty, mm-hmm. and just do that for two or three days. If I, if I'm with them, if I'm with just one person all day, it, it it's a, it can be a little much for them. I mean, I think I'm all right with it. Sure. But I tell them, look, you need some time to go do some sightseeing. You maybe need some practice time, take a nap. 
Well, I think practice time is really essential with this and that right after you learn something, when it's just on the cusp of, uh, of yeah. getting into your hands and your brain, that's when you need to sit down and practice it. You ought to play it. You ought to assimilate it. Yeah, absolutely. Remember the Borg and Star Trek, those big cubes? <laughs> and it, and they would they would turn you into them and like them right. was like this one entity you are now borg right well when i get a new technique it's not enough to just understand it a little bit i need to assimilate it into my community of abilities and and you know mm-hmm. sometimes when we teach like i've learned how to really cram a lot into somebody's head but honestly after each new idea they ought to go away for 20 minutes yeah and just and just say all right i'm gonna think of everything i play everything i've ever played everything i ever want to play and i'm just gonna see with this one new idea how does that affect everything i used to think of it like um, that new technique was a lens or a, a filter and i now i need to look at everything through that new filter and um it would generate weeks of practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, one new idea. Weeks. Months. And here Years. we are at a festival giving somebody like, here's <laughs> 200 new concepts. Right. <laughs> but I try to work the practicing into the workshop, uh, but I probably underdo it. I've I've tried that too, and I I haven't been too successful with it. Uh, in uh, planning the right amount of time because there's a lot of stuff I want to give them. Um, And so I feel like five minutes at the end isn't quite enough uh, to really walk them through some different ways to practice or give them some freedom. Um, There are some of the festivals where – because – all of them are are different uh, in their structure. At some festivals where we don't get to cover quite as many topics, but we stay with the same core group for longer, I think it's easier to work in some practice, and they don't feel like uh, um, they're not getting their money's worth. Actually, I don't think I've ever had someone say that they didn't feel they were getting their money's worth, but... It's yeah, what they I, just leave quickly. It's what I worry about <laughs> with uh, when when I say I want to incorporate practice time. Yeah, because sometimes you get an urgent-minded person who says, I'm here to get as much stuff as possible. I'll work right. on it at home. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you might be the exception, but most of these people, they need to work on it here. Yeah. Or it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I would be you know, one of those people, most likely. Uh, yeah, me too. Uh, when I learned to fly fish, it was all that stuff. I just, mm-hmm. give me this one thing and please leave me alone for a while. Yeah. I need to look at it, think about it, do it. Then come back and check on me. And But in the, in the you know, in my three-day intensives, we do get to practice. It gives everybody a break a little bit. It allows you to to, to solidify some stuff. But I still always feel like, I bet these practice sessions are like 90 seconds in length or something like that, you know, when really it ought to be a good solid 15 minutes or something. But every time I ask a a group of students, I'll say, listen, I'm going to give you guys three minutes 
This isn't a break. Don't talk to each other. Nose is down towards your instrument. Practice this. It doesn't matter what I say. Everybody takes the opportunity to chill out. (laughs) (laughs) We are worn out. We are going to take a break. Yeah. And they're there, you know, they're there to enjoy themselves. Often sure. it's a vacation. Yeah. One, uh, one week long camp I taught at, uh, this, this lady was so sweet. She, she told me the first day, um, just so you know, at, at some point during the week, I'm just going to put down my dulcimer and start knitting because that's what I do. And I'm on vacation. And so in class, sometimes she would just put the dulcimer down, pick up, the, uh, the knitting project she was working on and go to town. I and, think that's excellent. Yeah, and she was delightful. <laughs> I tell people, you're welcome to sleep in my class. You know, you're welcome to get up and leave. Whatever you got to do to manage your attention and interest. You know, uh, y- Your mom won't take a class from me anymore because I woke her up that one time. <laughs> no, she <laughs> sleeps in all classes. <laughs> Not all classes, but she, I think she gets comfortable. Yeah. She was so comfortable in your class (laughs) that she went to sleep. Yeah, I just felt bad. I scared her. I mean, too many of these classes, it's like, I, I really, it's hard for me to do. I've been learning over the last six years or so, four years, um, I really, I try to break I don't know, every 35, 40 minutes or so, and I try to break for about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. When things get really heated, like a three-day intensive on that second day, I start breaking every 25, 30 minutes for 10 to 12 minutes. Oh, that sounds and, good. And it's, I really think we get more done. I think mm-hmm. people are more awake. I think they're more attentive. This thing where you sit there for two hours... And get up for a five minute break, if that. Yeah. No thanks. Yeah. Like I am not that helpful or interesting, <laughs> and to pretend that I am is insulting everyone's intelligence around me. <laughs> Jeez, well, Pete. Well, that's intense. I got is an it? aquarium. <laughs> <laughs> what are I you did. doing with the aquarium? I got a ten gallon. I used to have aquariums when I was a kid. So this is our break, by the way. Yeah. This is our 10 to 12 minute break. I, well, I, got, I was going to, I was going to ask you if we're going on break, how you liked that, uh, that Corey Vrecken. Is that a fish? No, that was the bottle of Ardbeg that you, that you picked up. Oh, I sent you a picture of scotch, yeah. but I did not buy the scotch. Oh, you didn't. Okay. I regularly send you pictures of scotch, but I have yet to actually buy a bottle. Did you know I I wrote an original piece called Cory Vracken? No. For that bottling? Yeah, it inspired a melody. Now, is te- technically, is that a guppy? What is... Cory Vracken? Yeah, is, is that a type of... Uh, well, you've is got... Is that a, like a molly? You've got the <laughs> the Gulf of Cory Vracken off of... Uh, off of Scotland, and uh, there is a naturally occurring whirlpool in the Gulf, which I also hear referred to as Cory Vrecken, the whirlpool itself. But it's a, uh, but it's a great bottle of single malt scotch. Now that we have run off the listeners, let's talk about something. All right, crazy. 
I mean, we probably should do this with Dan, but I want to do it anyway. Okay. It's it's not like there's a shortage of stories. Let's talk about maybe a nightmare gig. I love doing this. <laughs> Something that's just crazy terrible. Not even crazy terrible. You know, even the worst gigs have their have their shining moments. I Absolutely. Mean, I, I don't think I've ever had any job devoid of any kind of goodness. Uh huh. And we're not going to mention names or states or genders. Sure. We're going to try to keep this real secretive. Okay. I can do that. Now, festival organizers, <laughs> uh, if you're listening to this, these upcoming stories might actually involve you. <laughs> This seems like a bad idea. It does seem like a bad idea, but listen, if it probably isn't you, you know, if you hear a crazy yeah. story, it's probably not you. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we've given them a warning. Are you going to go first? No, I, I really want you to go first. You do? Yeah. <laughs> well, mine's not going to get me in trouble. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. And the person who coordinated all this happens to be a real sweet person. It's a good way to start it. No, it's true. Yeah. So this one gig I'd been doing for a while, for years. Mm -hmm. And they got a new director at their, you know, location. And the new director wasn't so excited about having a dulcimer festival there. <laughs> no. So they warned me that, that that year that I saw them was probably the last one. They weren't sure. But they said, we, this is probably it, you know. And I think, and I always enjoyed doing it, and everybody involved, I thanked them, and, you know. So then I get a call, like three or four months maybe before, when that festival usually would happen. And they said, hey, can you do the festival this year? And I said, and I think, actually, Aaron, I think it was like two months out or something. It might even have been six weeks. It was something crazy. And I said, I, I still have that slot open, but what's the deal? You know, are you guys going to have time to advertise this? Or, And she said, oh, I released the gender. She said, um, well, here's the deal. <clears throat> this town, about a half hour from here, when they found out we weren't going to do the Dulcimer Festival, they decided they might want to do a Dulcimer Festival. Oh. And we heard a rumor that they were going to call you and try to hire you. And we don't want them to have a Dulcimer <laughs> Festival. And I was like, all right, so let me get this straight. Your new director decided probably no more Dulcimer Festival. And then like a couple months before when it would have been, you find out some other city near you wants to do all this. And you're like, no way. She was like, yes, that's what's happening. That's amazing. So I was like, well, let's do it. <laughs> you know, and I told her how to advertise the thing. I gave her some tips like, look, you don't have a lot of time. We need to let everybody know that usually would come to this thing, which was a good number of people. Mm -hmm. We need to let them all know it's happening. So I gave her all the tips. Now, I didn't realize this, but she followed none of the tips. I mean, oh. 
I don't even think she did a single thing. And I love her. So I just think she was probably overwhelmed. I've been overwhelmed. So anyway, I drive the better part of a, a full day. I mean, this is a good trip. Mm-hmm. I stay in a hotel the night before. I get up the next morning. I go in. And they all look at me a little surprised. And I don't really know if I ever got the truth on why they all look so surprised to see me. But they basically told me they had failed to tell anyone that the gig was happening. And that there was a good chance I would be the only dulcimer player there that day. So they said, don't worry, we'll pay you your fee. And, you know, the hotel last night and tonight is yours, no problem, we'll feed you. And I... I went and I thought, and I got ready to teach. You know, I, we had a schedule. Uh-huh. Nobody showed up for that first class. Oh. I ended up just playing on the porch. And nobody came, which was fine because I got to play all day. Yeah, that's cool. And I got my money. You know, I didn't get to sell product and stuff. Right. I didn't get to have the kind of fun I would have had. But that was so hilarious to me that somebody would be like, we're not having the festival. Wait. Now we're having it. Get here. Can you get here? Okay. And then you get there and there is no festival. (laughs) Now, I wouldn't call that a nightmare gig because everybody involved, it was like we all got along. They took care of me. You got paid. But let's just say that's weird, right? That is, yeah. That would make me uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if that story was worth the words it took to tell it. but Well, Well, my story will be pretty short. I think. Oh, it's a short one. I think so. Um, well, it was... You're, I was a teenager. I was really new to teaching, and I was excited about teaching this week-long camp. Um, and, and older people sometimes who are a little jealous of the young kid who can play well, they don't like it when you get excited, certain particular older people. I shouldn't even be making this up. That's a well, guess on my part. Well, Keep going. I'll shut up. <laughs> you know, the, there's in the Dulcimer community, we've, we've met a lot of couples that have picked this up in their retirement. And many of them get along in our classes quite harmoniously. Right. Oh, you mean the couples get along with each other? The, yeah. 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 Um, this particular week long, um, which was my first time ever uh, teaching a week long, I did not have a happy couple in there, and they it, it made me so uncomfortable. I didn't know how to deal with it. Uh, right. When, whenever I was teaching, he he would keep playing, and she would smack him on the on the arm and shoulder hard and get mad and yell, Stop it! Stop it! And, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was intense, and I, I was just kind of freaked out. Like, I didn't know if I should be, like, the peacemaker or what, but the whole week was like that every day. And... Um, that is unfortunately the only nightmare gig I'm really comfortable sharing, which wasn't so nightmarish. It was just a, I didn't know how to deal with that. But truthfully, I haven't had anything remotely close to that ever since. Um, so we're not, we don't feel safe to reveal the 
truly crazy gigs. No, no, not at all. <laughs> because, I, I don't know, I've had some pretty epically bad experiences at festivals that I that I love. And it's hard to hide which one it is in the story. Like, I, this, right. these bad experiences would not hinder me from going again to right. the same festival. And, and that's the thing. Has anybody ever... It's been pretty good, I guess. Well, actually, when I was playing uh, bass in a punk band, I can share some nightmare uh, gigs from those days. Hey, give me one of those. Okay. So, um, uh, let's see. I can't remember if this all happened at the same gig or if they were separate uh, gigs, but... Um, one venue that we used to play at in Tallahassee had this really small stage, so you were right up against the mosh pit, just a, um, a group of angry high school punk and college kids, uh, throwing each other around and one and like a mosh pit they're pressing into each other they're ramming into each other okay yeah yeah Yeah. oftentimes going in a circular direction often uh counterclockwise um for some reason and slamming into each other at full speed every once in a while grabbing someone and throwing them and uh on this one particular night i i remember uh uh, there was a rather large fellow in having fun in the mosh pit, and he grabbed this one kid and he threw him uh, right into the tower PA speakers, which were not secured, and they fell over onto a few people. And I learned later that night that those 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 people were fine; they ended up not getting hurt. But there were there was another kid in the in the mosh pit that got a concussion that night. And had to be taken away. Uh, uh, the, at some point, the microphone slammed into my face and slammed into the singer's face, and he finished the gig with a bloody nose. I mean, with the nose full of toilet paper. And to cap things off, uh, a bunch a bunch of kids that came out for us um, got into a fight with the, a fist fight with the headlining band that evening, who we really liked. <laughs> And we were excited to open for them. And, uh, yeah. So that was playing bass in a punk band. And I find that no matter what happens at these dulcimers, no kid has ever been picked up and thrown in my face uh, and given me a bloody nose or thrown into the sound system. And so I guess there aren't too many real nightmare scenarios. I know. Well, I keep hitting the mic. That's kind of a nightmare. There was this one gig where um, this person was, I, I was really nervous about the gig. I was not thinking very positively about my own ability to do the job. But at the end of the job period, <laughs> I felt relieved and I was surprised and thought it went much better than I expected. So when I went in to get paid, I was just young and excited. I was very young. I was and I was just excited and I I said, "Man, I think that went 
really well. I was, I, and I was basically getting ready to say, I was really nervous this week and I think it went out, it went a lot better than I thought it would go, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think this person misunderstood me and they thought I was sitting there saying, I thought everything, I did a great job or something like that. I did a great job. Anyway, person got in my face and was like, look here, puppy. You know, and just gave me this whole talking to about not being. And the thing was, is I didn't have a problem being arrogant. I had been scared to death. I felt like, you know, I just landed a plane without a pilot's license. Yeah. And that made me so mad that somebody would throw a little fit like that. But, um, and I I find David Schnaufer at the time, he just, he said, hey, it's just part of the job. Don't worry about it. You know, it was good. Yeah, I find that there is a pretty direct relationship oftentimes uh, when we're performing between uh, how nervous we are before a gig and then how happy we are if it goes well. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. It's a good feeling. Yeah. Yeah, This that's crazy. Um, we just can't tell many of these stories, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the thing about the dulcimer world, it's so nice that, you know, we know people. Like, I was reading, um, somebody was saying on one of the forums that the better players right now, they were suggesting that the better dulcimer players have a responsibility to package their music in a special way so as to make dulcimer... um, as to give it more exposure to the rest of the world. Hmm. So they were like saying, you know, the rest of the world doesn't even know what we do. And the better players really ought to do a better job of getting their music out there so the rest of the world can appreciate it. And the funny thing I caught myself thinking was, because, you know, they were worried that the dulcimer scene is dying or whatever, which I'm currently not worried about at all. I think it's doing fine, but I remember thinking, I don't want to repackage my stuff. Um, I mean, I certainly, I want to grow as a, as a, uh, as a person and as an artist and as a worker, but, um, I like our little world and I know not everybody, you know, but I like that even on the worst gigs, I tend to think of the people who were part of that problem for me. I still think of them as family. Yeah. You know? Uh, I know a bunch of people who've gotten big attention in larger arenas, and it hasn't. it's not like you win a lottery ticket. Sometimes it's, right. it's more trouble than it's worth. Right. So I guess I'm just saying I like a whole lot of things about this niche uh, but yeah, I'd love some more opportunities. So I don't know. That's yeah. That, hmm. I don't know. I I'm I'm inclined to. When you when you were saying uh, what was going on on the forum with uh, the better dulcimer players need to uh, or have yeah, that's a not a direct quote. Okay. I'm I find myself going back and forth between wanting to get defensive and 
kind of agree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, like kind of agree on on certain elements uh, to a limited yeah. extent, but um, I don't know. It's it's a topic that maybe we visited a little a little too much, and in that uh, I think for me it it goes back to in the in the dulcimer world there is a pretty big emphasis on. Um, teaching, which I'm not saying is a bad thing at all, but, uh, um, my, when it comes to actually playing music and writing and arranging and creating more stuff, that's for like what you're doing with concert window and what I'm trying to do on Patreon. Um, but those are, I think probably smaller chunks of what we're doing than, uh, than being on the road teaching workshops. I mean, I, well, think of this idea, like, um, so sometimes we think of the dulcimer, I'm just playing here. I don't have like some kind of, uh, manifesto to present. Okay. But I think we sometimes think, you know, our community is mostly players. Mm Mm-hmm. And and it's it's not unusual to hear somebody dream about what would it be like if we could just be doing music for music lovers, not necessarily dulcimer players. Mm-hmm. Could we appeal? You know, and now this is a statement that could get me in trouble, and I don't know if I believe this or think it's true, but here goes. Can I interrupt you for just a quick second? Yeah. The dulcimer players can be music lovers too. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Yeah. It's just okay. so often our audiences are players right. and learners yeah. for the most part. Mm-hmm. Mine are, you know. So I have this idea that if it wasn't for that fact, if it wasn't for the fact that they're learning to play, we might not have any audiences at all. Yeah. And I and I have a theory as to why that is. Why is that? I would say that the sound we make is a little too rough. It's a little too rough on the ears. And I don't mean playing technique, although that could be part of it. I'm just, let me put it the way somebody in Nashville might put it. Somebody who's not a dulcimer player, maybe a studio guitarist. Okay. They may be like, I've heard this before. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but they'll say something like, Man, the dulcimer, they're just whacking away on it. The thing's out of tune. You can't hear the melody. They've got, you know, the typical person with a dulcimer, they're not even paying attention to the people around them, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Somebody else might just say, um, why are we even using a dulcimer? You know, we got guitar, mandolin, we got it all covered. We don't need that. It's an inferior sound. It's a sound that you don't find featured in popular music because it's too barbaric. Yeah, it's, you know, disagree. Now, I'm not saying that's my that's not how I look at it. Sure. But I'm I think one reason the instrument could not maybe stand on its own better is just because it's too weird. Well, and another reason would would be my fault. I haven't done something interesting enough with it to garner the attention of non-players. Okay. To me, most instruments don't stand on their own very well. Really? Um, on their own as a solo instrument. Yeah. Um, 
guitars, I think, guitar and cello are, to me, two exceptions. Um, mostly guitar. Um, oh, well, that's interesting. Instruments that stand on their own as far as being solo. Yeah. So... I think Dulcimer does a better job than many other some. instruments at uh, at being something where you... I feel like we at least stand a chance of being able to put together a solo show. Yeah, but I think when I say stand alone, I'm talking about... I mean, when they stand on their own, I'm just talking about the tone and the sound of the instrument. Mm-hmm. I love the dulcimer. Don't anybody get me wrong. I like all kinds of things about it, how it's peculiar mm-hmm. just for me. It seems perfect for me. But when you hear one note on a harp, it sounds pretty good. You hear one note on a saxophone, one note on an electric guitar, on a guitar, one note on a dobro, one note on a drum. You hear one note on a dulcimer, it sounds like somebody just stubbed their toe on some chicken wire or something. (laughs) Now, I'm in love with that sound. You know, David Schnaufer has that poem where he says, I play the sound of the ground I walk on. You know? That's deep. Um, And... And I love it, the idea of it being a sonic wilderness and, and a possibility box. And, mm-hmm. and to me, I associate people and periods of time and developments and songs and styles and techniques and history. And I, just, I love it all. It sounds I very like that spoken it sounds word. peculiar. <laughs> I'm just trying to um, make sure I don't get mean emails. But <laughs> the truth is... Maybe other instruments, when you just play one note on them, maybe we're not in the top five as far as the, the quality. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I like it, but it doesn't seem like other people like it. Let's just get real about this. Uh-huh. It doesn't seem like the world is clamoring to get more Mountain Dulcimer. Well... And I think you need to take a look at what the world is. What is the world actually claiming, clamoring for? All right, I for. want you to hook me up. Let's um, talk about it. What is the world clamoring for? Well, uh, I know we've talked about this before. What goes viral? Um, things that tend to go viral are things that people can already relate to. Um, covers go viral a lot quicker than original songs and much easier. Um uh, one, I mean, there's a few exceptions to that. I know we've talked about this before after our friend, uh, Ted Yoder had the viral video of, um, tears for fears rule the world. But, um, I think in performing mountain dulcimer to, uh, non dulcimer audiences, I always have much, I always get a much better response when I'm playing with other instruments that they already, I guess, have a, a reference point on. Like, That's a good like, point. Like guitar, violin, or mandolin, what, whatever. Um, it's it's kind of like, you know, when, when people say, I wish you would play something I knew so, you, so I could tell if you were any good or not. Playing with an instrument that they know can kind of, uh, I think, make them appreciate it in a way that maybe they couldn't have if the dulcimer was just on their own, on its own. 
Yeah, because it's. I've heard people say, "Hey, I, I kind of like what you're doing, but I'd like to hear you with a band." Right. You know, mm-hmm. and it, that that typically comes from a non dulcimer player, but it, it also comes from people who are very band oriented. Like, see, I've got this thing where I love solo performers. Mm-hmm. DeFord Bailey on the harmonica back, you know. Uh, especially the the early part of the 1900s. (laughs) Tony Tony Trishka, by the way, his solo performance kind of changed my life. Yeah. Really? I don't know about it. Yeah. Have you ever seen Tony Trishka perform live? Or just solo? I've met... I met him, but I've never okay. seen him perform live, no. I, I've seen him uh, do a solo show three times now. And uh, and the first time, I was just kind of getting into old-time and bluegrass music and Irish, just trad music in yeah. general. And um, But I was still – I knew enough – to know that I should be at least curious as to how this guy is going to do an entire evening on just solo banjo. And he totally pulled it off with, um, just with the way he was able to communicate with the audience, share information about the banjo in a way that wasn't, um, totally academic in nature. Um, but somewhat, and, just the way he was able to set up these songs in a way that people could relate to kept me entertained the entire night, all three times. And he had... Th- and it was just him? Just him, and he had three different banjos with him, so he was able to explore different tones. Um, like, he had a resonator uh, banjo, and he had a nylon string banjo, I think, that he did a lot of claw hammer stuff on. And... Um, that's not so different from us bringing a dulcimer right. and a band jammer and, uh, and like a baritone or a bass dulcimer to a gig or something else. See, that gets me excited, man. Yeah, that's that. I, and I think of Leo Kotke, mm-hmm. and I think of um, when you go see the Flectones, how sometimes they'll just step out on the stage and just play solo for one, two, three numbers. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. There's so many musicians. Like David Schnaufer got my attention first when I was in high school and I went to see him play um, in Cincinnati. And there was a a room of about 100 dulcimer people there. Mm -hmm. And David played solo for two hours. And he, he used different tunings. He had capoed all over the place, even with different tunings. He played an electric dulcimer. For part of it, um, he did not sing back then, at least during that set. So that just blew me away. And when and just you know the the things about the dulcimer that I really love. I was thinking, there's certain things in life that are a little bit an acquired taste. Um, a little odd things that I like, like scotch. That's some people would find terribly disgusting. You know, they'd say, just give me my, uh, what's it called? Doers. Oh, the blended scotch. What's it called? Doers. The cheaper scotch. Yeah. Doers is a cheaper blend. Yeah. So a lot of people would be like, that's scotch to me. I don't want this other weird stuff you're drinking (laughs) or even glasses. I like glasses that are huge or really (laughs) tiny. I don't like anything in between. I like to wear overalls, you know? Um, 
if you tell me a cheese is particularly disgusting, then I think I have to try it. And it's like, the dulcimer to me is not disgusting, but it's like, it's different. I like things that are different. I like things that are off the beaten path a little bit. And if you can push past that initial discomfort with mm-hmm. this odd thing, it can sometimes open up a universe of new stuff. And for me, the dulcimer has done that. Like, I love guitar, but yeah. I get bored playing the guitar yeah. personally. I mean, and I love playing piano and working on stuff, and I love synthesizers. I do love these things, but I don't I don't love them the way I do dulcimer, and I can't explain that. But I just, you know that sticker, it says old-time music better than it sounds? Yeah. yeah. I sometimes think that about dulcimer. Huh. You know, for those of us who love it, we know it sounds good to us. But um, for the rest of the world, I want to tell them, hey, the mountain dulcimer, better than it sounds. And I think it sounds great in different ways, but it's clear to me that it, the, the public in mass does not agree. And that might just uh, be yeah. our fault. Yeah. Do, I, do you think the public loves the dulcimer in general? I don't know. <laughs> I think... Um, Is this I depressing? Mean, I mean, obviously, there's some preconceived notions uh, in some cases. Um, I mean, no, no, but no, sixteen-year-old boy thinks the dulcimer is the way to meet girls. I mean, well, I happened to, I thought that when I was sixteen. Me too. Okay, well, we were wrong. Uh, not in my case. Okay, well, I met some girls too. I guess I met my wife at a dulcimer festival. <laughs> My Gosh. wife took my class, so yeah, the my theory held up. Wait a minute, it worked for you. It did. I think you should start doing a podcast where you tell young men. <laughs> Gentlemen, I know you're looking for a good wife, and you've got to pick something that attracts the kind of woman you might be interested in. Yeah, that that's a short podcast. <laughs> Maybe that was the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well, we arrived somewhere, so that's cool. But anyway, no, I think that um, yeah, there's there's some preconceived notions and uh, with dulcimer in some cases, I don't think that really hurts us. Uh, really, and and when I was doing more just broad folk festival and even some jam band esque festivals. Um, I didn't think that I didn't get the impression anyway, that people were put off, uh, from the dulcimer. I think they were intrigued. That might have been because the musicians that I was playing with already had established audiences at these festivals. So maybe they were, Willing to right, give right. me a little more of a chance. Um, you're you're talking solo? No, I'm talking whenever I did these, okay. these f- festivals with a group. Um, All right, let's say at Merle Fest, you've got a 25 minute set. Okay. With 10,000 people listening. Okay. And you're solo. Okay. That that makes me nervous a little bit. Oh yeah, that'd make me terrified. Absolutely. Yeah. But I don't think it's impossible. 
No, and I'll tell you, it could be argued that if we were playing for that kind of audience more often, it would shape us and shape our choices so that the music coming out of us might be more interesting. Yeah. I think it's really important in a case like that to, I think, to plan your set a little bit, at least the first three songs. My goodness. To know how you're going to, what are you going to use to get their attention in that setting? How are you going to follow it up with something that they hopefully already know uh, yeah. so that they can relate to? And then what, how are you going to communicate to them? How are you going to acknowledge them? Uh, and I think if you can make it past those first three songs, you'll be good. I think we'd have a shot at it. I do, too. I but concur. is Tony Rice going to come over and ask you to join his band, you know, after he hears what we do? No. Maybe? No. <laughs> Why not? Because Tony Rice is having some problems with his hands, and he's he's not really playing too much. Okay, so <laughs> let's pick somebody who's... <laughs> Brian okay. Sutton, he would be like, I got to get that Stephen Seifert in my band. <laughs> um, well, the thing is, I, I think a lot of, I don't know. I mean, Brian Sutton, it seems, is uh, first and foremost a, a studio musician and a professional side guy. I've never seen him be the front person of a band, but I think. Yeah, but he would see you or me and he would think, that's what I've been waiting on. Really? I think he would he I think he would probably think to himself, "No, I'm making pretty good money being uh, one of the best side musicians on the planet." Now, he's going to drop it all for the dulcimer player. <laughs> but here's an interesting thought. When I've been in the studio in Nashville, and I I'll take different instruments so they can hear what kind of sounds I can produce. Yeah. And there's two sounds that this is interesting. I don't want to overstate this, but two sounds that Dulcimer makes that gets their attention and the rest typically don't. Yeah. One is the droney style, possibly mixed in with some noter sounds. Interesting. That gets their attention because they're like, we don't hear that often, uh -huh. what you're doing right there. Uh, the other one is Boeing, a Tennessee music box, uh -huh. you know. Both of those involve a drone. Both of those involve a strange timbre, a, a different sound. Now, when I go to the finger picking uh -huh. or flat picking or using a bunch of chords, they seem less interested in that. And I think it's because they're like, look, we've already got instruments that do that pretty well. Uh -huh. What can you do that none of these other instruments can do? And I think the noter style is a big one. The fact that when we slide, you hear a scale and there's a drone going on and mm -hmm. then the whistle of the noter. Now, I'm not saying that that's... But I guess what I am saying is that's one of our most unique contributions. Mm -hmm. There's not... We don't have a bunch of other instruments fretted like us. Uh-huh. So... Well... <laughs> and then and if that's their favorite sound, they're not... They're not going crazy to hire noter players. Well, I know with, um, I mean, you've, you've probably done more session work than, than I have. And I, I've never done Barely. session work in, in Nashville, which sounds like it's its own unique beast. But uh, 
being down in Florida, there were a number of studio sessions I did where I was also on a track with a guitar player. Um, yeah. Uh, who even had flat picked sections. And I knew th- from the client via the producer that what they wanted was um, they were somewhat familiar with me and they, they wanted me to do some filler stuff. Like that's not, yeah, like, like li- right. licks and stuff. And I, kind of went into it with knowing the other guitar player that was on this was really good. Um, so he could uh, have done those. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but I, I got the track and I got to put down my part after the, uh, this guitar player. Um, and, and it was really cool stuff that, that he was doing, but I decided since I had, uh, I had about a, I think, two days to prepare before I went into the studio and I decided I'm going to, I'm going to spend some time on this. And, uh, and I was was like, if he's going to use anything from the dulcimer, it has to be kind of, uh, it has to be able to hold its own with what the guitar player is doing. So I spent some time on it. I was really happy with how it came out and he ended up using me for a lot more of the project and I got more studio gigs when I was in Florida as a result. But I think, uh, where it came to doing the flat picking and filler stuff, um, it has to, I think for it to hold its own, it has to have some unique elements that the guitar can't necessarily do. Like one of the things that I I did a lot was moving around double stops and incorporating these long slides in a way that I've never heard a guitar player do because they're really in, they're really only working with one octave you, uh, from zero to 12, just on a single string. So if they're going to do some of these huge moves with double stops, they're going to have to change strings here and there. They can't get these exaggerated slides in the same way that we can. We also, I mean, guitar players can retune, but there are some things that work really well uh, just as a result of the linear nature of our instrument being this long fretboard that the guitar, that guitars don't have. And so, uh, my take on it was even though I'm going to be doing some things that cross into this other territory, I'm going to try and make it as unique to the dulcimer as I could. And it yielded more work, but like, uh, like I said, it wasn't in Nashville where there are, I mean, insane musicians that can do anything. It's so. crazy. Well, I mean, I think a lot of what gets session work in this town is when you're hanging out with people and you develop a relationship with them. Yeah. And they like you as a person mm-hmm. and they just want you to be a part of their project. I mean, that's something that goes on. That's cool. But when it, but when it comes to big things, it's very rare. Like David Schnaufer did some big stuff. But in those situations, I think he knew. It wasn't that somebody was like, we got to get a dulcimer player in here. That's what yeah. this track's missing. They were like, the artist was saying to the producer, David means the world to me, and I really want him to be on this project. What would be a good song to put him on? Nice. You know, um, I'm just making this up in my mind. I mean, this is how I think it probably went. But 
I mean, that's one thing is you don't have producers saying this track needs a dulcimer. Right. Now, what they ended up doing is saying this track needs David Schnaufer. Mm-hmm. But I, I, um, it's strange to live in a town like I do here in Nashville. And, you know, I like to think I'm a fairly accomplished musician and I do get to do some cool stuff. Uh huh. But I'm rarely, if ever, a part of anything truly big in the music world. Well, I think... Um, Which part of uh, it, I know, is my fault, but part of it's the instruments. I think that the uh, the ukulele exploded with uh, the cover. I mean, at least from what I noticed, um, after Jake did the cover of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, um, it seemed yeah. like Uke just kind of exploded, but... Um, even though Uke is appearing on more and more really big recordings that are making it on the radio and being produced by major record labels, the Uke parts are really pretty simple. And I don't think there right. was quite so much affection for the ukulele, um, even, in a, if, even in that lovely simple form, until uh, something went viral where this guy took it to a, another level. Which I think Jake, how do you say his last name? I, I purposefully avoided saying his last name uh, because right, I everybody don't know. you know who we're talking about, his last right. name starts with an S H. Yeah, it's like a Shim Shibakuru Shibakuro. Yeah, uh, what a bunch of yeah. Listen, this is embarrassing. I'm looking it up, <laughs> Jake. Uh, I mean, we sound like a couple of idiots here. Shimabakuro. Oh, I don't know how to I don't know how to pronounce it. S H I M A B U K U R O Shimabukuro. Anyway, I've heard some great. Now let me say it this way: I've heard some really good mandolin players. Uh huh. I'm sorry. <laughs> really good ukulele players. Right. But Jake is got an energy and an attitude and a perspective that attracts me to his music. I like what he's doing with stuff. Now, is he doing Joe Pass guitar stuff? Is is you know, is is he doing like Eddie Van Halen stuff on there? Maybe not so much. But to me his package is just right. <laughs> don't don't you laugh at that. And I think with David Schnaufer, he had the whole package. Mm-hmm. You know, he had this collection of skills and interests and attitudes and ways of presenting and functioning. You know, so to me, the artist is a big deal. The artist is a big deal. I mean, if I'm not getting more interest on a worldwide scale, the first thing to blame is me. That's the first thing to blame. I find some of my fellow artists are more apt to blame something else. Mm-hmm. Um, that one time we were all sitting around and people were talking about why doesn't the dulcimer get more respect? And I raised my hand and I said, I think if we all practiced more, it would get more respect. <laughs> you know. And everybody yeah. was mad when I said that. They were mad at me. Interesting. 
I mean, but I, I can, feel that responsibility. I want to be better. I mean, the, there's another side to that too, and that finding yourself amongst the majority doesn't ne- it doesn't necessarily mean that um, the majority has great taste. I mean, you, you don't have to look too far into pop music to find examples right. of that. You're right. Um, but the opposite air would be saying, you know, no one understands our refined taste in music and these dullards. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, that that's true, but they're, but, <laughs> you know, the, the Eagles, I like the Eagles. Yeah. I love the Eagles. I like Steely Dan and Willie Nelson, you know, and I'll even listen to Fine Young Cannibals, you know, given the proper evening. But uh, who's listen, this one, this should not be on the podcast. Are you ready for this? Yeah. This is going to be this is a little bit of a trick question. All right. This should definitely be edited out for sure. Okay. Okay, whose dulcimer music do you listen to the most? Whose dulcimer music do I listen to? Do you the listen most? to the most? So, by dulcimer music, do you mean just dulcimer instrumental music? There's a bunch of humans on the earth that play the dulcimer. Uh huh. Week to week, day to day, whose do you hear the most? Name the person. Again, are, are we talking about just dulcimer instrument or just someone playing the dulcimer? Dulcimer, period. Any music coming from a dulcimer. Sarah Morgan. I agree with you. Yeah? Yes, but I don't Actually, think that it's you're not, telling it, the truth. It's, it's me. I listen to me. That's because, right. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to get to. Yeah. You knew that, and you wanted to soften that by mentioning Sarah. So, yeah, Sarah, we love Sarah's playing. Uh-huh. But who does Aaron listen to for the most part? He listens to a whole lot of Aaron. Yeah. It's not because you're arrogant. It's because you're constantly working on stuff. Yeah. And I remember David Schnaufer said that to me one time. You know, he said something about, he said, uh, he he really enjoys his own music. And I was like, really? He said, well, yeah, if I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't play it. Makes sense. I mean, it's hard to talk about this because it makes you sound like, you know, I don't, your ego's out of control. I don't think so. I think it's really understandable. I think you have I to think you listen like to your, yourself. I mean, it's... As it's, critical as you are of your own playing, you always seem disgusted with yourself. <laughs> I think you happen to like what you do. No, I do. Um, this I, is the first time you've ever admitted this publicly. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I do actually like a lot of stuff that I that I come up with, but I I also spend a, a lot of time trying to execute things that are beyond my reach. And oh, here's a good one. Who's playing annoys you the most? And I would answer, my own playing annoys me the most. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I could have said Aaron O'Rourke. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's just weird. I mean, what is all this we're talking about? Uh, we're talking about uh, an instrument, an odd instrument that we both devoted a, a large part of our lives to. And um, the rest of the world doesn't always seem to share our love. And it, and you know, it's a, uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting landscape. Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to the listening thing, I've been, I, I, I want to learn how to cook. I, I want to be a really awesome chef. Really? Yeah. I mean, probably not a celebrity chef, but, uh, but I really, I don't know. There's something about scotch that I think kind of made me a little bit more aware of the process of just consuming anything on the nose, the palate and the finish. Um, and so I, uh, I've been looking up a whole bunch of stuff on, on YouTube, but that led me down a little bit of a rabbit hole with, uh, some cooking reality shows like uh, Gordon Ramsay on MasterChef, and yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I'm I'm into Anthony Bourdain and Gordon Ramsay. Cool. I don't like Hell's Kitchen, but yeah. everything else I like. Yeah. Um. So, are you into MasterChef? I think I've watched that where it's the three chefs and they judge you and all that. Yeah. So did you see the season where uh, there was a blind chef competing? Mm, I forget. And she had to taste all of the ingredients while she was cooking. Uh, she oh, was just wow. tasting everything. And uh, and Gordon Ramsay made this comment that I love that that you're doing that. Um, and yeah. she she said, "Well, I have to because I can't really see and and right. I can't." That's the only way for me to really gauge. And, um, right. and he said, he said, I, I love that because when I'm teaching people how to cook, especially young people, I actually teach them how to taste first. Amen. And well, musicians need to be able to hear. Exactly. I, and that's why I think when I, I tend to get a little skeptical when I, when I'm talking to, or when I'm trying to teach someone and I ask, Okay, so what's your favorite song and why? What do you like about the song? And they go, oh, I don't really like any songs. Or they're not able to pick out a certain song. Before we work on any aspect of their playing, I'm, I want to say you just need to listen some more and you need to find right. what it is you like. Right. I mean, people come to this for different reasons, but right. you would hope that a, somebody who wants to be a chef... You would hope that they um, are always refining their palate, you know. Yeah, and I guess you know, just speaking really honestly, I think there are uh, when it comes to looking for a teacher or something like that. I don't think I'm a really good teacher at taking someone from zero enthusiasm. Uh, to 10. Um, I think whatever 10 is. Yeah. Whatever on a scale of one to 10, just taking someone from no enthusiasm to some. Um, but I think, I don't know. I'm a little bit more obsessed with the process of getting from, uh, from being able to identify the hook of something and turn that into something else. Identifying what it is that, that actually gets you excited and exploit that a little further 
and get the most out of it. Like we were talking before, you learn one trick and that can set you up for days, weeks, months, years. I think you and I are similar a little bit yeah. um, in the way we teach. Um, it's like there's some, first of all, I'm going to describe some different ways of doing things. You know, some people, and I, I say this a lot because I think it's important. Some people play a very small amount every week. Uh-huh. And it's not their main focus. It's not their main interest. Sure. They might, they got, they're working a full-time job. They got a sick relative they're dealing with. They got teenagers in the house, whatever. Mm-hmm. I always try to make sure, you know, when I start talking about what I love about music, I want to make sure everybody knows I get it. You do this for the reasons you find it interesting. Not, right. You know, don't do it for the, the way I love it. Uh-huh. And if sitting there with a tab, a fun tab, and let's get serious about this. I have gotten tabs before when I was a new player that were just fun. Yeah. It would be like one or two pages, and you would be like, man, this thing rocks. I want to learn this. This is fun. I had fun doing it. Um, some teachers, that's mostly what they do, and I certainly am not saying that's a bad thing. I really am not. Right. But what, what they're really good at is they find interesting music, and they put it in an arrangement that the majority of intermediates can digest. Right. And and there's a certain kind of dulcimer player that loves that. And uh-huh. I am not talking that down. Yeah. Um but I, I don't think that I don't think you are like that and I don't think I'm like that. I think I sometimes try to put a little bit of that into my teaching because I want to uh-huh. give people some fun mm-hmm. and I want to give them some encouragement and I want to give them a little break. But right. very often you or me are like, hey, for the next 60 minutes, let's look at how you're actually sitting in your chair. You know, and everybody's <laughs> like, what? Let's look at how you're actually holding the pick. You know, where is that pick pointed? Right. What type of wrist movement are you doing? Listen to this mm-hmm. note going up against this note. Do you hear a dead spot in there? What's making that dead spot? Is it your sleeve? Is it, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think we tend to be. I don't think our classes are as big because they're maybe not as fun for the average player. Mm-hmm. My class sizes have been pretty good this last year, especially the advanced classes, which has surprised me. Um, yeah. But I, I did kind of, yeah, um, I don't know. Well, it, it, it always changes and fluctuates, so so who knows. Um, but, uh, but I have noticed, I think I've talked to you about this, I'm pretty dependent on a whiteboard now for flexibility. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I like to use that too. Yeah. Just f- for the sake of, uh, like I said, flexibility. And I think that... Uh, I've really enjoyed instead of giving out multiple tabs for the same song uh, when a lot of people are comfortable relating to that tab um, versus so instead of just giving a simple version and then talking through variations that you could do, 
um, having that whiteboard to actually demonstrate how this simple version turns into this more complicated version, this more complicated version. And then, yeah, but there's a good number of people who don't want to know that stuff. Yeah. And I think at, at least what seems to be the case anyway is, uh, um, I think I have fewer people showing up to my workshops uh, surprised that that's what we're doing. Okay. Well, and I think that's true. I mean, but I, I'm familiar with these festivals and the numbers yeah. other people get because the directors talk to me. Uh-huh. The teachers who tend to just do some fun tab, and I I want to do more fun tab. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um they they might get twenty eight thirty two in a class. The class has to close. Well, those are all generally those are going to be intermediate and novice intermediate right. classes, which right. is where the bulk usually of that's are. right. Yes, and if I teach that same level, those tend to be my biggest classes. Right, but I might get twelve to twenty people. Okay, I I'm not I'm usually not closing out those. Uh huh. And um. But what it it makes me do, you know, uh, even if I blow somebody's mind with some new technical idea they can really benefit from, it's still okay to give them a fun piece of music where they can go home going, that's a cool tune. Yeah. But um, I've really been hyper-focused the last bunch of years on how do you play something simple a bunch of different ways and really well and in an interesting manner. You know, that's been a big part of my push. And a lot of people don't want to go that deep. Yeah. And that's okay because they might be going that deep on something else. Motorcycles, fishing. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe this lady designs dresses in her free time. Like, there's no reason to expect everybody to be as crazy about dulcimer as we are and in the particular way that we are. No, no, I, I don't. I I wouldn't have any problem at all with an individual who thought that we just weren't a good match as a as a teacher and a student, um, uh, and that we have I don't have a problem with anyone who just has a different set of musical priorities. That's totally cool. I think it's important to uh, if you're gonna seek instruction from someone at a festival or privately, it's a good idea to find someone who can, I think accommodate your musical interests and priorities. Like I, I had a lesson earlier, a Skype lesson earlier this week with a, with a fellow that is already a, a good player and wants to get better at improvising and incorporating some blues licks and other cross picking patterns. And it felt good. Cause it felt like a good match. Like I felt like I could give exactly what he was looking for. Yeah. Um, if it's someone who, if I have a student who comes to me and says, uh, I, I want to learn some, uh, you know, uh, tunes from the forties or fifties, I'm only going to, I can help them out a little bit along the way, but there's going to be a point where I say, you're, you're probably better off, uh, contacting someone. Yeah, like, I'm going to show yeah. you what I know and, yeah. and that might not be, but three weeks worth. Right. Yeah. I mean, and there is a, there's a type of lesson, like I knew this one lady, and people would come to her house, they really didn't want to learn new techniques. They kind of wanted to just do a new tune. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and she would make herbal tea for him to kick off the lesson. Nice. And it was kind of a safe zone, uh, like a relaxing place. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I might like to attend something like that. Right. <laughs> but I'm generally, that wouldn't be a good fit for me. Right. But are we doing people a disservice when we get this serious about how you're holding the pick and what kind of pick you're using and how you're sitting and watching? And da, da, da. Like, I don't think so. Like, uh, maybe we should be presenting an easier to digest version of the music. And we're up there. Like, what if you went to a thing on how to trim your nails and there and it's just like a it's like a three week course on how to trim your nails? I mean, uh-huh. what we're doing is more important than that, isn't it? <laughs> I I I think it's hopefully a little bit less dull than a three week course on trimming your nails, but maybe the course I mean, are we has training to be three people because your nail has to grow back out, and then you have to. Revisit. We're trying to show people to but. do things the way we understand how to do them ourselves, and our and and often we're trying to share our own particular passion. Well, yeah, because I think it's what we're qualified for. I think That's it's right. what we're qualified to teach. And That's right. I think, um, you know, there's, if it's something that I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a good resource for, there's probably a better resource uh, for what someone might be looking for. Like I said, if they're looking for tune, you know, uh, some simple arrangements of songs from the four, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, good luck with that. Well, I would probably say, hey, you might want to send an email to uh, to Toll Glazner because he does oh, a, yeah, yeah. A, a bunch of really cool arrangements that are uh, that are playable. Um, and I I don't have a problem acknowledging that I might not be the best resource for someone, but uh, I think the complaint that I hear from from a lot of advanced players is they they they've stopped coming to festivals because they feel like there's not enough for them. At That's that right. Like they've Cause sometimes the advanced know. class really should be called advanced, um, repertoire for sight readers or something. Sure. But, but the kind of advanced class I want to teach is like, I want to make you more capable as a musician. I want to mm-hmm. give you a greater ability to speak the musical language with others. Right. Yeah, you're right. And oh, thanks. I mean, but it, you know, if you convince a festival owner to do a truly advanced thing, <laughs> you know, nobody shows right. up anyway, even though yeah. you've advertised it. But you're <laughs> saying you're you're getting more of a turnout for advanced stuff. That's been the case for the last year, I've noticed. Like, huh. it, but uh, that's also starting with a pretty low bar in that it wasn't unusual for me to teach an advanced class and get three people. Um, three or four people. And when that number goes up to ten in an advanced class, that that, to me, feels really good. I've been doing this thing in my advanced classes lately where I say if you are not advanced... You are welcome in here, mm-hmm. but you may not complain at all. Right. You can't roll your eyes. You can't even look bored. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in advanced, yeah. this class is for you, and you may complain all you want, and right. you can look bored all you want. 
you know, I guess I go out of my way to let the beginners and intermediates know you're welcome in here. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But let's not forget that these advanced people, they want to move forward right. with advanced stuff. Yeah. Um, but I swear just saying that makes my beginners seem more welcome and they complain less. So shoot, I'm not going to complain about that. Well, cool. Well, I'm up for not complaining. And on that note, we've been talking for almost two hours. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> no, we've been talking. I was wanting to see how long you would go, actually. My ears are getting sore because I have the earbuds in underneath the headphones. Yeah, so let's take a 10-minute break, and then we'll come back and do one more hour. <laughs> hey, it's uh, been nice talking to you. I yeah. hope that um, the stuff I've brought up doesn't get either one of us in trouble. Yeah, me too. That'd be cool. Yeah, I still haven't heard about your adventures in Texas or D.C. or Virginia Beach. Oh, that but, was all good stuff. Yeah. but You're never going to hear about it, probably. Ah, okay. So tell me what you got coming up. Uh, what, what do you got coming up? Coming up, um, first thing I've got coming up in May, I am doing something in Cincinnati. And yeah. then I'm hopping over to Indianapolis uh, to do something. I'll be crashing at our friend Toll Glazner's um, and doing something with the club around there. That's and, not. I've got something coming up in Indianapolis. Oh yeah. I don't know where it's at. My I first, have to get on the website yeah. to even get a clue <laughs> about where I'm supposed to be. My first week-long camp in June is uh, teaching at Kaufman's camp this year. That'll be great. Yeah, that should be fun. No, you might meet some cool people there, man. Yeah. I've tried so much to get in there, but I haven't won the national competition, so... You should go. He, you should go enter the contest. He won't let me in. You should enter the contest. I think I should enter the contest, but yeah. then some, if, if I'll probably lose, but if I happen to win, somebody's 12-year-old who just traveled three days to enter will be upset at me. for If I happen to win, I will get in trouble. Yeah, see, there's this um, – Yeah, maybe that's a topic for another day, but uh, I know some people have some opinions. Uh, if you won the, the national contest, you shouldn't enter again. Or if you're a professional. Um, yeah. I don't know, because I've thought about going for the fingerstyle guitar contest, and I figure, you know, while I'm there, I might as well do the, the mountain balsamer. I think you should. And it's not, it's somebody's like, you're not going to help yourself by entering. Hey, guess what? The number one reason to enter a competition is to give you something to work on and to share your music with other people. And anybody who's going to cry about any of the rest of it, about unfair judges or I don't like competition, the way I look at it is we're all out there trying to function together and have a good attitude and share our music with the world. There ain't nothing wrong with that. I, th- I thought Dude, the you- main reason to enter the contest was uh, for the free dulcimer and money. Okay, well, that's part of it. So when is the um, when is Winfield this year? I don't know. Speaking I mean, of what's coming up for both of us. Usually in September. You know what I think would be great? Yeah? If you and I both entered. That could be fun. Because if, if one of us does it. Now, I'm seriously, just because we entered doesn't mean we win. We know that. I, know. I didn't yeah. even make fifth place there. I mean, I didn't even get in the finals. 
But yeah. if one of us, if only one of us go, we can get in a lot of trouble. But if both of us go, we let everybody know ahead of time, I think it'll turn it into something real fun. Yeah, that could be pretty cool. So just imagine if you and I got shared first and second place. Let's just imagine. Not that uh-huh. we're any good at playing. But let's say that we got both got first and second. We'd probably be all right with that. Like we could take each other out for a beer and have a good night. Yeah. But what if like you get first and I don't make the finals? <laughs> you know, that's the thing. That would be the thing. I get second place and you don't make the finals. I I mean I think it's generally accepted that you don't take the end results of contests too seriously. Yeah. And if you do, you're a part of the problem. I want to tell if you don't like contests, you might be part of the reason people don't like contests because the rest of us just want to get up there and kick the ball around a little bit, have a good time. No, it's not totally fair. It's not a scientific judgment on your playing ability. All right, let's play this. (laughs) darn festival so here september 13th through the 17th i'm looking on the calendar september 13th through the 17th oh my gosh yeah i think i could do this really oh that's awesome well um there might be an extra gig out west but i don't think i'm doing that so here's the deal I I might go to Winfield, and then I would drive on to uh, Seattle, and uh-huh. then on to San Francisco, and then Townsend for the Banjammer. Okay. Can you make Winfield this year? I think so. Are you serious? Yeah. You want to do this? I'm going to send an email to somebody to see if I if I've got that weekend available. I think I might. Cool. Dude, that's insane. Uh, yeah, I could just drive home, and then I could fly to Washington. Sweet. I kind of want to drive out there. All right, so here's the deal. We're th- both talking about entering the national competition. Is that right? Yep. And whoever wins is the best, right? <laughs> That Probably is not, not how it works, people. Yeah. Whichever one of us wins will get lots of work, right? Probably, Probably not. not. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank yeah. you for entertaining this. I'm going to send an email, and um, why don't you tentatively put it on there? I'm going to tentatively put it on here. Sweet. So the contest is usually Saturday morning? I believe so. By the way, if, are we still um, recording? Are we still podcasting? This is still the podcast, Aaron. <laughs> Sweet. I was going to see if we could break the two-hour barrier. We've only got four minutes, five minutes. we got four minutes to go. Yep. I want to break the two-hour barrier, and then I'll hang up. Okay. So I'm. if you're, let's say you're nine years old, and you are awesome on the dulcimer, and you want to go compete in Winfield in Kansas for the Nationals. We want you to come. But if we accidentally beat you, you're not allowed to cry. 
You're not allowed to cry about it. Oh, we could make this really interesting, Steve. What's that? Uh, you play my arrangements and I'll play your arrangements. We talked about this a long time ago. I'll write no, wait, out something wait, 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 for wait, you. Wait, 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 wait. I'll write whoa, whoa, out whoa, something wait, wait, wait. for you to play, and you write out something for me to play. Wait. This is like the the episode of Master Chef where their baskets of food get swapped, and so they have to come yes. up with a recipe that someone else was plan with the food someone else was planning to use. Now this is interesting. Yeah. What if you played one that sounded like you and one that sounded like me, and I did okay. the same, and they were the same tunes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Now, I'm not saying we play Your Mama, but what if we both played that tune you wrote called Your Mama? <laughs> yeah, we can What's do it that. called? Hi, Mom. <laughs> yes. Although this is just hypothetical. Yes. Yeah. We both play Hi, Mom, and then we both play something I do, which... I don't yet have anything that interesting, but <laughs> let's say um, let's say that we both played the whiskey before breakfast that I play on YouTube or something like that. Okay. And to the best of our ability, we try to play exactly the same. Like, I don't know. I think it's interesting. It, it is interesting. If and if you make it into the finals, you play whatever you want. Okay. That's or fair. vice versa, do whatever you want, but once we're in the finals, we play the same exact arrangements. Yeah, I think if we play the same exact thing, neither one of us is going to make it into the uh, the second That's, round. Yeah, but see, that way we preserve our uh, respectability. Yeah, because I think, aren't there points for originality? Yeah. Yeah, you've you've judged Winfield before. Yeah, right. which is funny for a guy who's never won it. Yeah. yeah. So you, you, you already have an advantage. I'm regularly introduced as a national champion. Right. <laughs> never even made finals. That's pretty awesome, though. You didn't have to. We got, to one, we got one minute to go here. So um, I have to admit, it brings out a competitive part in me. That might it might be good. See, we both enter would enter into this really out of love for each other. <laughs> <laughs> because you know what? It would drive me to come up with four kick butt new things. That's cool. Now, you've already written about 72 different items since you won Winfield. You just got to pick the four good ones. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I feel like I'm a very different player from when I, from 2010, the year that I won. Don't you think if you just did something real complex and didn't screw it up and you were in tune, that would get first place? I don't know. It depends on who's there and what the judges are looking for. Dude, we need to do this. Yeah. And with that, I'll wish you a good week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll catch <laughs> you next time. Uh, we'll see you on Winfield, maybe. See ya. I'll see you later, Aaron. Adios. <laughs> Bye.